Right, thank you, Ben. If you'll please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Imagine that you were commissioned by God to write a letter to encourage Christians who are facing martyrdom. And in that letter to explain to them who Jesus is and why He's worth facing death for. Can you imagine having to pen that letter? Now imagine that you had to explain who Jesus is, what He came to do, and why suffering for Him is is worthy of that. And you had to do that in a series of tweets. Or at least in a blog article. I'll give you that, maybe a blog. Well, that would be a challenge, wouldn't it? And if you think about it that way, that can help us appreciate Mark's gospel a little bit better. Because that's kind of what Mark is doing. Mark wrote the first gospel. So his gospel is the earliest gospel. He, he created this genre of literature we call a gospel. And he wrote the shortest gospel. He, 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 it's like he had just a word limit. And he kept things very short, very succinct. You know, there, there was no maze. As Ben was saying, he's making a straight beeline to help us understand who Jesus is. Mark's gospel, because that's been called the go gospel, because he presents Jesus as this man of action. And Jesus is always going. He, he, Mark wants us to understand who Jesus is more from what Jesus does than for what Jesus says. So Jesus is always on the move, going, doing, teaching. He doesn't sit still for very long. Mark uses the word immediately 40 times in this brief gospel. He writes in the present tense. He's writing with this sense of urgency. And he gives us the facts, just the facts, with very little commentary. In fact, if you'll look in your order of worship, you'll see that I've included today, I'll pick that up later, a fact sheet, just the facts about the author, about John Mark, about the gospel that he wrote, uh, the structure of that gospel. I encourage you to look at that and and use that as a reference as we go through this sermon series together. And as you look at that, you'll see that most scholars now agree that Mark's gospel is likely an assemblage of Peter's sermons and recollections. We know that John Mark was, was Peter's son in the faith, that he was with Peter there in Rome at the end of his ministry as he was facing uh, execution. And so Mark is writing down the memories of Jesus' closest friend. He's writing down these stories that this early leader of the church has preached and proclaimed so many times about Jesus. And Mark writes these down for a very specific audience. For Roman Christians who are experiencing enormous persecution at the hands of Nero. It was under Nero, you remember, that Rome burned. The devastating fire and Nero blamed the Christians for it. And he followed that up to distract the people because really there was a lot of blame to place on Nero and the corruption of his regime. He wanted to deflect and he put all this blame on Christians and engaged in enormous persecution. And it was under Nero that both Peter and Paul were executed. So these Gentile Christians are suffering. They're afraid. They need some encouragement. And what better encouragement to give them than to help them remember the suffering servant Savior 
to help them identify their suffering for Jesus with His kingdom work through them. But they needed more than just encouragement. They also needed to be challenged. Because as is so often true with us, when we're afraid or discouraged or disheartened, we don't just need encouragement, we need challenging because we often tend to sort of become inwardly focused, don't we, in those kinds of difficult times. We sort of circle the wagons and we can kind of become defensive and protective of us and our needs. And and sometimes that's a good thing, but oftentimes, especially for churches, for Christians, that makes us so inwardly focused, we lose the urgency for the mission that God has given us. We see this happening today with COVID. For, you know, we, our families, we kind of kind of turn inward. We've got to protect and defend and, and, and look after ourselves. Churches are doing this. Our whole country is doing this. So for that reason, and we can identify, I think, with these Roman Christians in this way, Mark doesn't just encourage these suffering saints. He also challenges them with Jesus' example, with Jesus' teachings. And for that reason, a lot of scholars agree that Mark 10.45 is the core central theme of Mark's gospel. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So let's keep these things in mind as we walk together through John's gospel, that Jesus came to serve. And He sends us out to serve. Listen, even when life is hard, even when the world stands against us, even when it isn't safe, the call to love and serve God and others does not change. Amen? And it doesn't change because of who Jesus is, which is where Mark's Gospel begins. Very matter-of-factly. Look with me at Mark 1. One in this says the beginning, and obviously that's meant to evoke Genesis, right? In the beginning, so Mark says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now notice that Mark's gospel doesn't begin like Matthew and Luke with a, a story of Jesus' birth or his genealogy, because remember. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. They don't care about Jesus' Jewish heritage and lineage. So Mark skips ahead to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You know, uh, for for Roman believers, uh, they weren't as concerned about pedigree as they were people's character and actions. Show me what kind of person you are by your actions and your words. I don't care who your parents are. That was sort of the, the Roman mindset. And so Mark begins simply by stating his purpose. His purpose is to present the facts that prove that Jesus is the Son of God who came as a suffering servant to save us from sin. This question, who is Jesus, is as relevant today as it ever has been. Maybe even more so. Because people today, more than ever, are confused about who Jesus is. And so Mark gives us the straight-up answer through three central aspects of Jesus' identity. The first, His name. Jesus. His name is Jesus. A a common Jewish name. There were lots of kids named Yeshua in the first century. It means the Lord saves. It's the the first century equivalent of Joshua. Uh, We read about Joshua in the Old Testament. You might know people named Joshua. There's people named Josh here today. That's the name Jesus. And that Jesus had this common Jewish name reminds us that 
He was a man. He was born as a baby, grew up as a child, lived his life as a man. He had a nationality. He had an ethnic identity and history, just like all people do. And Mark is going to continue to highlight the humanity of Jesus more so than any other gospel writer. As we go through this, watch for the emotions, watch for the humanity of Jesus on display. You know, one of the great heresies of the past was that Jesus wasn't really human. That he didn't have a real flesh and blood body. That he, he really didn't have human emotions. He really didn't experience temptation. He really wasn't, he, did, he didn't really suffer and die on the cross. That, that Jesus wasn't really human. Well, Mark, <laughs> he lays that out for the lie that it is. Jesus very much was a man. Flesh and blood. But then he moves on to give us his title. He was Jesus the Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek word for, the Jewish word, the Hebrew word, Messiah. It means the anointed one. It's an official title of position. And this title connects Jesus to the Jewish scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the culmination of God's redemptive history through the people of Israel to bless all families on earth. You know, there are people today who have embraced this heresy that that wants to just dismiss the Old Testament. And they say, well, you know, the Old Testament just is irrelevant, and the God in the Old Testament is this angry, wrathful, judgmental God, but the God of the New Testament is this loving and compassionate God, as if they're two separate beings. But listen, there are not two gods. There is one God. And He is God in the Old Testament, and He is God in the New Testament. Jesus Himself said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. The Old and New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole of Scripture has Jesus as its subject, its object, and its aim. It is all about Him. And Jesus' title as Messiah makes this connection irrefutable. And then third, John gives us His nature. He was the Son of God. His nature is that He is the Son of God. Mark wants his, under, his readers to understand, he wants us to understand that while Jesus was a man, He was more than just a man. Yes, He came as a servant, but this servant also happened to be the very Son of God who came to redeem and restore a lost world to its Creator. Now, Mark may not express this in the very elegant poetry that we heard from John's Gospel this morning, But Mark is every bit as certain of Jesus' divine nature. And as we journey through this book together, you're going to see it on every single page. Now, this also is an ancient heresy, sort of like the the whole Jesus wasn't really human. There's an ancient heresy that said Jesus wasn't really God. So you had some people back in the day that were saying, well, Jesus wasn't really a man, but he was God. They were saying, well, he, he, he was a man, but he wasn't really God. He was just a godly man. And I think that heresy is is more present and more dangerous today than the other one. Because there is a very popular sentiment among secularists out there that want to say that Jesus was a good man. He was a great teacher. People will say, oh, I like Jesus, I like His teachings, but I don't believe He's the Son of God. Well, I'm sorry, but that's hogwash. Because you can't say you like Jesus' teaching if you don't believe what He taught, which was that He was the Son of God. 
Jesus spoke time and again, often and repeatedly, about His divine nature and His oneness with the Father. He didn't equivocate on that. He didn't leave us to wonder that. He was clear in that. This was not some later development, as some say, that was kind of read into the Jesus story. Mark's gospel at its latest was written in A.D. 68. At its latest. I think it was earlier than that. That's only 38 years after the events of Jesus' life. Jesus is clear in this earliest of gospels. It's clear that Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, after stating this premise and his purpose, Mark next presents some evidence for these claims that he makes about Jesus' identity as the suffering servant Savior, who is the Christ and the Son of God. Think about these next verses as credentials, as Mark kind of laying out the references for Jesus before he gives us the resume of all that Jesus said and did. So let's look at Jesus' identity as it was first announced by men. In verses 1 through 8, Jesus' identity was announced by men. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, the first person, obviously, that announces Jesus here in Mark's Gospel is Mark. John Mark himself. Verse 1 is obviously his statement of faith and his claim to the identity of who Jesus is. And again, use that fact sheet to read up a little bit more on John Mark. He was a dynamic young man who was a, a, a key leader in the early church. But then secondly, he immediately goes to the prophets. The prophets. Now Mark is actually combining a prophecy from our Old Testament reading this morning, Isaiah 43 with a prophecy from Malachi 3.1. But he only credits Isaiah. <laughs> Poor Malachi. Why doesn't Malachi get any, uh, in, any mention here? Well, it's possibly because Isaiah, when he wrote about the Messiah, he emphasized the suffering servant aspect of the Savior. That Jesus would come, and Isaiah 53 is especially that passage of the suffering servant. But when Malachi wrote about the Messiah, he talked about the judgment the Messiah would bring on the wicked nations. Now, obviously, both of those aspects of Jesus are true. He is the suffering servant who came to save us from our sins, but when He comes again, He will come in judgment on the wicked and on the nations. So both of those are true. But remember Mark's audience. He's writing to Roman believers who are facing persecution under the Roman Empire. They need to hear about the Jesus who identifies with them in their suffering. They need to hear about the Messiah who came as a servant. Yes, someday Jesus will come and He will 
bring justice on those nations and peoples who oppose him and persecute his people. But that's not really very helpful for these Roman believers to encourage them at this moment. Now, both Malachi and Isaiah in their prophecies, as we see here in verses 2 and 3, they describe a messenger who's going to come first to prepare the way for the Messiah. And, and you know, kind of, you know, building off what Ben was talking about, in ancient times, a king, if he's going to come through a region or come visit a city, uh, he would send out officers ahead of him to prepare the way. And they would literally level hills. We've got archaeological evidence of this. They would go in and fill in ravines. They would literally make, they would remove obstacles and make that royal journey as smooth as possible. Today, we might compare that to the Secret Service going out ahead of a presidential visit, you know, and then removing mailboxes and trash cans and clearing the streets and making sure everything is safe. That's this ministry of this one who's going to come before the Messiah to prepare the way. Now, before this messenger would come, there'd be 300 years of silence from God. Malachi is the last prophet to speak to the people of Israel, and then God is silent for 300 years. Until all of a sudden, in the Judean wilderness, this wild man comes up and starts preaching and baptizing people in the Jordan River and claiming that he's the one prophesied 300 years ago who's come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And of course, we know that man is who? John the Baptist. So we start with John Mark, we go to the prophets, we end with John the Baptist. John broke this silence, boldly declaring a word from the Lord for the first time in three centuries. Now, John chose an interesting place to do this and carry out his ministry. It wasn't the best place in its logistics, but it was the perfect place in its symbolism. To the Jews, the desert wilderness was a reminder of their ancestors' rebellion. Remember in Numbers, they're about to enter in the promised land and the spies come back and two of them say, we can do it. And ten of them say, oh, but the walls are, the cities are walled and the soldiers are big and we can't do it. And the people refuse to believe in God and so God condemns them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It's safe to say that John was not very mainstream, isn't it? In fact, he was a radical, very much in the vein of Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Elijah. And Jesus actually compared John to Elijah. And in the tradition of these prophets, John became a living prophetic parable. In his desert location, in his weird camel hair dress, in his disgusting locust and honey diet, John was actually protesting the debauchery and the and the wickedness and the extravagance of the Jewish culture in the first century. And by forcing people to come out to the wilderness to hear him preached and be baptized, he was calling them to reject the wickedness of their culture and the corruption of their institutions. He was calling them out from that to come and meet with God. And coming to the desert to be baptized... There near where the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea was also a way to identify with their ancient Israelite ancestors and to confess their own sinful rebellion. John wanted people to admit that they had wandered away from God and to express a desire to return to the Lord. So John preached a message of repentance of sin 
And he baptized people. Now, you may say that's great. And certainly as Baptists, you know, we're in favor with baptizing people. That's a good thing. But how is this a ministry of preparation for the Messiah? How is baptizing people and preaching repentance of sin, how is he making the way straight and smooth for Jesus? Well, think about it. If Jesus came to save us from our sins, we first have to realize, admit what? That we're sinners. That's right. People needed to be baptized as a symbol of purification because they were, they were corrupted by sin. They were defiled. Now, all over Israel, especially over the past 15 or 20 years, archaeologists have uncovered hundreds, hundreds of these ritual baths called mikvah or, or mikvot in the plural. These mikvots served as two, these are two primary functions. One was ritual cleansing for Jews, and the second was conversion for Gentiles. Now, if you were a Jew, there were so many things that could make you ritually impure. And none of them were necessarily sinful. It was just the daily things of life, touching a dead body, uh, certain bodily discharges and things that would happen to you could make you ritually unclean. And again, that wasn't a sin, but it meant you couldn't enter the temple. It meant you couldn't adequately observe Sabbath or feasts like the Passover. It meant you couldn't go make offerings and sacrifices to the Lord unless you were first cleansed. And so they had these ritual baths, very similar to a baptistry, that they would go into to make themselves ritually pure again. Now, the fact that we have found over 700 of these in Israel, uh, mostly from the first century, points to the fact that the ancient Jews were far more observant of this ritual purity stuff than we previously believed they were. But the mikvah were also used by Gentiles who wanted to convert to the Jewish faith. And as a symbol of their conversion, they would go through a mikvah. Now, John's baptism was unique. John wasn't interested in ritual purity. That's not what his baptism was about. He didn't care about whether you touched a dead body, or, you know, you wanted to go into the temple or not. That wasn't what his concern was. Nor was he asking anybody to convert to a new religion. John's baptism was one of repentance. A turning away from a sinful life. A commitment to pursue God's righteousness in your daily life. Now, I want to be clear here. John was in no way preaching a works-based salvation. He wasn't saying, look, y'all come get wet and you're forgiven. That's not what he was saying. John was calling the people of Israel to turn away from a life of sin and renew their commitment to God by turning in hope to the coming Messiah. John's preaching and baptizing were absolutely linked with the coming of the Messiah. Think of his baptism as an anticipatory baptism. That he's saying this could lead to forgiveness of your sins because the Messiah is coming and He will make forgiveness possible. He is coming to make people right with God. To set people free from sin. To change their hearts from the inside out. John explains this there in verses 7 and 8. He makes it very clear that his ministry is to prepare the way and then get out of the way. He has a very humble understanding of his role in God's plan. In fact, in John's gospel, John says of Jesus, he must become greater. I must become less. Listen, if John wanted the spotlight, it was only so he could turn it and shine it on Jesus. That's what it was all about. 
John's ministry was preparatory. It was symbolic and it was temporary. He said, I baptized with water. That's an external symbolic ritual. But Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring internal and eternal change to people's hearts. John emphasized that the Messiah's baptism would bring about lasting transformation and would make people eternally clean before a holy God. Listen, I hope that you've experienced that kind of true baptism. Listen, if all you ever did was go into a creek, a lake, or a baptistry and get wet on the outside, but you never experienced the cleansing of Jesus on the inside, listen, don't leave this place today before you know that you have trusted in your heart in what Jesus did on the cross for your sins. You know, just as John's baptism was sort of a pointing ahead to what Jesus would do on the cross, when we baptize somebody here, we're pointing backward to what Jesus did on the cross. But both are about what Jesus did on the cross. It's not about what you and I do. It's about what Jesus has already done. So when we baptize, we're doing that as an external symbol of an internal change that has already happened in your life. The minute you're saved, Jesus baptizes you. He fills you with His Holy Spirit and begins to change you from the inside out. And I hope that that has happened for you. Then in verse 9, it says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Finally, the man of action himself enters the scene. Jesus of Nazareth has come. Now, if you notice back up in uh, verse 5, The people that were coming out to hear John and be baptized were coming from Jerusalem. Which is where you would expect the Messiah to come from, right? It's where the temple is. It's where the kings of Israel reigned. It's where all the movers and shakers and the Judean and the Jewish religion, that's where they are. But where does Jesus come from? Jerusalem? No. He comes from this no-reputation little backwoods town in Galilee called Nazareth. As one of the disciples would say... Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, does it? People wonder, okay, why did Jesus come to John to be baptized? Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of. Two reasons Jesus was baptized. The first was an act of identification with us, with sinful humanity. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus' baptism points to this amazing exchange that happens on the cross. The sinless one who became sin for us here at the beginning of His ministry is already identifying with us as sinners. But the second reason is to affirm John's ministry and his message. Jesus is saying, I've not come to do something different. I've come as a continuation to build on what John has already been preaching and what he has already been doing. And so Jesus came to affirm John's ministry through baptism. And the neat thing is that through baptism, God affirmed Jesus' ministry. We see that Jesus' credentials are that he was announced by men, but he was affirmed by God. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. As Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. 
with you I am well pleased. So this event in this remote place in the Judean wilderness was the center of a cosmic event. The Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all here. Jesus the Son being baptized, the Spirit coming down on Him like a dove, and the voice of God the Father ringing out. Can you just imagine Jesus coming up out of that water? And He says it's like heaven is being ripped. Heaven's being torn open. And the Spirit descends like a dove. Now, what does that mean? Did He actually come in like this bodily form of a dove? Or is that just something descriptive? Could Jesus just see this? Could others see this? We don't know. But what matters is that the Spirit's presence clearly indicated God's anointing and empowering of Jesus' ministry. Later on in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus will talk about this Himself. He'll quote from Isaiah and say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is the anointed one. And then God the Father. As if that wasn't enough, God the Father speaks. And He says to Jesus what every son and daughter wants to hear from a parent. I love you. I'm proud of you. I delight in you. Isn't that what we all want to hear from our moms and our dads? Think about it. Before Jesus began His earthly ministry, the Father makes it plain that He delights in and loves His Son. Before Jesus preached His first sermon, worked His first miracle, before Jesus hung on the cross and took the sins of humanity upon Himself and died for us, before He's done any of that, God the Father says, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're my Son. God doesn't love Jesus because of what He's going to do, but simply because of who He is. And you know what? That's true for you and me. God loves you not for what you do for Him, but because of who you are. Created in His image. Loved by Him so much that Jesus died on the cross for you. Now can you imagine in the 40 days in the wilderness to come, in the three years of ministry, in that week of passion when Jesus is going to be betrayed, when He's going to be denied, when He's going to be abused and die on the cross. Can you imagine how powerful these words were for Him to sustain Him, to encourage Him? This moment in the Jordan, these words from the Father were central to Jesus and they're of utmost importance for us as we consider who Jesus is and what He came to do. If we think about these first 13 verses as preparation for Jesus' ministry, the preparation of the prophets and of John the Baptist and of His own baptism, these last two verses are the final preparation as Jesus faces that old enemy, the serpent. Satan himself. Where Adam, the first man, failed, Jesus, the Son of Man, the new Adam, is victorious in resisting the temptations of the devil. It's because of who Jesus is, announced by men and affirmed by God, that he here at the very beginning of his ministry is also attacked by Satan. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Mark says the Spirit sent. That Greek word means drove, compelled him to go out. Because servants aren't just led, servants are sent. They are commanded. Mark's the only one that uses this strong word. The other gospel writers say led. But again, Mark is helping us see that Jesus came 
as a servant to obey the will of the Father. Jesus' humble identification with sinful humanity in his baptism here continues as he identifies with us even in temptation. He's tempted by Satan, and he's tempted for 40 days. Now, again, 40 days is very symbolic. I've already mentioned Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings. But Moses was 40 days on Mount Sinai receiving the law. Elijah was 40 days in the desert fasting and praying. And God used both of those men to bring deliverance from bondage for his people. Just as he will use Jesus to bring deliverance from the bondage of sin. And Mark is also the only gospel writer to use the term Satan here. The others use the word devil. Now, devil means accuser, but Satan means opponent, adversary. Mark is letting us know that there is a spiritual opponent who's going to do everything he can to discourage and dissuade Jesus from his redemptive mission. And we are not going to... This is not the last we see of Satan or his demonic minions, as we'll see in the weeks to come. But before we finish, finish, I want to point out one more unique element of Mark's account. He's the only gospel writer to say that Jesus was with the wild animals and attended to by angels. Mark is emphasizing how fierce this experience was for Jesus, not just in facing temptation, but hunger, thirst, and even danger from these wild animals, and that God was with him to help him through it all. Now, why does Mark bring out this detail for us? Again, think about his audience. He's writing to Roman Christians who are literally facing wild animals. Nero was infamous for taking Christians, throwing them in the arena, and unleashing wild animals to tear them apart while Romans watched and ate their popcorn and cheered on. Jesus is saying, I know, or Mark is saying, I know what you're facing. Jesus faced it before you. He faces it with you. And just as God the Father was with Jesus when He faced the wild animals, God is with you as you face the wild animals. Now, when we consider that Jesus identified with us in our temptation, as the author of Hebrews writes, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. How much more can we also be comforted when we realize that Jesus also identifies with us in our sufferings? He knows what it is to be hungry and thirsty. He knows what it is to be in want and need. He knows what it is to face the dangers of serving God in a fallen world. So for Christians who are suffering injustice for their faith, they've got no better friend or advocate than Jesus, the suffering servant Son of God. That's who Jesus is. Announced by prophets, affirmed by God, and even attacked by Satan. We know that Jesus was, is, and always it will be the Christ, the Son of the living God. He came to serve, He came to save, and He came because He loves you. He loves you. Later on at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus will ask His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answer, they give them all these various theories of Jesus' identity, but then Jesus pointedly says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ. Listen, that is the most consequential question you will ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? 
And your answer to that question is the most consequential response that you will ever make. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a good teacher, a good man? Is he just an historical figure for you or a bedtime story? Or is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? I pray that you know Jesus as your living Lord and Savior. And if you don't, right now, I ask you to simply do this. To believe that He is the Son of the living God who came and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And then confess with your mouth that you want Jesus Christ to be your Lord. The Bible says if you do that, you will be saved. You will be baptized that moment by the Holy Spirit and become a child of God. And if you need to do that today, I would love nothing more than to help you not only just begin this journey as we walk through Mark's gospel, but to help you begin a journey of walking with Jesus through your life. And for those of us that are believers in this room, listen, there are people all around us with this question rattling around in their hearts and minds. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Listen, believer, what kind of answer are you giving them by the way you live? What kind of answer are you giving them in your conversations? What kind of references are you giving for Jesus? Think about that as we stand and pray and as you come and respond as the Spirit leads. Stand and pray with me. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through Him. Thank you that because of Jesus we can... Repent of our sins and experience your forgiveness and grace. And Father, if there's anybody here today that needs to do that for the first time, maybe they're a member of this church, maybe they've been baptized, but they know in their heart they've never really turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. I pray they would do that today. For those of us who are followers of Christ, God, forgive us when we give you poor references. Forgive us when we live and speak in ways that only confuse people further about who you are. Help us to be clear in our witness, in our walk, and in our talk. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen.